We've done a lot of deep diving into the infrastructure of e-commerce and marketplaces on this show. We've explored shipping as an API and shipping infrastructure in developing countries. This week, we took another spin on the topic. We talk about the cloud supply chain. Okay, so what does that mean? Simply put, if you had one software platform that could manage all your fulfillment, shipping, warehousing, and logistics needs, what would that look like? More importantly, what would it unlock for your business? I invited Sean Henry, co-founder and CEO of Stored, to come on the podcast and break down these very questions. Stored is solving this exact problem, and Sean has raised over $150 million to do it. There are very few businesses where the proxy for market size is some variant of GDP. Stored falls squarely in that bucket, and it's why I was so excited to learn from Sean this week. Welcome, Sean. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, Sean, excited to have you on the show today to talk stored and, and the future of supply chains. You know, supply chain certainly isn't something we all think about on a daily basis, but it's an infrastructure that drives the world. We experienced it through COVID. We saw the Suez Canal situation. So I'm really looking forward today to diving into your perspective on how this space is unfolding. But before we jump in, tell us a little bit more about your background and the journey to founding Stored. Absolutely. So I actually started Stored as a, as a pretty young entrepreneur, but it's really one of those tip of the iceberg stories where we've been running the business for the last five plus years now. But really for the last 15 years, including, including the business, um, I've been in and around supply chain from two different angles. First, as a small e-commerce merchant, um, I like to, to joke that quite literally as a, as a kid, my, my, I sold my Christmas presents on eBay and asked my parents to, to drive me to UPS to ship them. And that, that was my first, uh, first time fulfilling inventory and ran multiple first electronics, then automotive parts businesses, online e-commerce stores through, through high school and into college. Um, I then studied operations and supply chain management uh, at Georgia Tech as a concentration as an undergrad business student before ultimately dropping out just to found stored. But in that process, uh, my first years at Georgia Tech, I ended up working at a large scale automotive manufacturer, uh, Hueco in, in Germany, and was tasked with looking at their global supply chain across 23 different uh, factories in 19 different countries and trying to reduce inventory levels. So I really had the perspective of both a small merchant just trying to start up, just trying to fulfill our first inventory, then at a large, massive scale, billion plus in revenue, how do we actually optimize and, and save money in our supply chain? And in both, faced many, many, many of the same challenges that you would think aren't there at scale um, once, once you grow out of that small merchant mindset. And ultimately, those perspectives were what led me to, to found Stored about five years ago. And so what is Stored? Explain the company and the state of the business today. Absolutely. So Stored enables both retailers and e-commerce brands to deliver their products faster uh, and in a more optimized way than they can do on their own. And we ultimately do this so that they can compete. They can compete on the delivery promise of, of Amazon and of Walmart and what all these brands are offering their customers today. And so we do this by combining both an end-to-end -end logistics network, the physical things you need to move your inventory, and the full stack software to manage those into one cloud-based configurable platform that we call the cloud supply chain for our customers. This is designed to really level the playing field for brands of all sizes and enable that first-time merchant through an enterprise brand to delight their customers in the same way and focus on their products, their services, rather than all the heavy lifting and infrastructure in their supply chain. And so ultimately, we combine, again, both the software, the order management, inventory management, integration, and more into one platform, and the back-end network of over 500 warehouses, 
dozens of fulfillment centers, over 30,000 carriers today, which all together enable us to move a company's goods through our platform with over 99% of the U.S. covered in, in two-day delivery and over 90% of the U.S. covered in, in one-day delivery. So really enabling competition and, and ultimately democratizing access to what today some of only the leading brands like, like Amazon are able to afford through all the infrastructure they've built to enable their supply chain. And the introduction of software and the integration of it into physical spaces is, is of course a big innovation. I want to take a take. I want to take a step back and actually talk about this space because it's not familiar to most that are listening. Walk us through the modern supply chain and how it's structured today. Right? What's working well? What's broken? And and where's the room for innovation? Really good question. And so one of the things that's kind of frequently lost uh, with a platform like Store is that we're actually combining both the software and physical movement. And so we have to span this really complex chasm across two industries, but also a chasm across two things that we provide our customer. We both provide them the software to orchestrate how they move their inventory, seeing what's happening in their supply chain, optimizing it and more. But we're also taking these very incumbent, slow-moving, uh, asset-based warehouses, fulfillment centers, truck, uh, trucks, and more, and making them accessible in a cloud-like way through software. So whereas you're traditionally contracting directly with your warehouses, contracting directly with your carriers, and building this very fragmented network to, to operate your supply chain, we're pulling all of those physical movements into one software that you can at a warehouse as simply as you can add computer storage or data storage for, for in the cloud for your enterprise. And so one of the biggest problems in our industry that exists first off is fragmentation. So looking at warehouses alone, there's over 14,000 3PL warehouses in the US. 3PL are third-party logistics, meaning you are a logistics company holding inventory for me, example, Walmart or Home Depot as a brand. And the reason that 3PL industry has propped up so much in the last two decades is that as this ever-present need to deliver your products faster than ever has scaled, the only way to get one day or two day delivery is have six plus inventory stocking points across the United States. And for the largest brands with the volume to merit it, that can be 50 plus inventory stocking points across the United States. But even though that's what it takes to deliver to your end consumers, it doesn't mean you have the capital to actually go invest in all that infrastructure. Any company would have to be a tens of billions of dollar company to buy all of those warehouses, employ all those individuals themselves and fully manage the experience in-house. So instead, while products have gotten closer and closer to customers, the way companies have combated that is using third-party logistics providers, the large warehouses and logistics companies like XPO and Ryder and DHL and more that we, that we all see. And what, leads, what this leads to, because it's asset-based, because it's all about who has what lease and where for their warehouse, is hyper-fragmentation. You have a mix of these leading asset-based providers that are national, uh, combating against small mom-and-pop operators who have just started warehouses and logistics businesses locally in their markets. And as a result, you have over 14,000 3PL warehouses in the United States, 4,000 of those warehouses are owned by 52 companies. Again, those FedEx, DHL, Ryder, XPO. And while those 4,000 are owned by 52, there's this massive long tail of the other 10,000 that are small mom-pop regional owner operators that are struggling to compete off technology, off of service levels, off of their networks, 
They are one building and one market, whereas a, a FedEx may have a presence across the United States and can serve their customer more effectively. But again, it's all about real estate. And so one of the problems is that the average warehouse agreement in our industry, 57.6% of them are three-year plus volume-based agreements. And so when you're trying to go up and out and set up your supply chain, when you're trying to reach customers across the US, but also across so many different channels, you're piecing together a mix of your own warehouses and factories that you own and operate yourselves of 3PLs, but likely each and every one of those 3PLs is a different logistics company in a different market. And they're likely running off of different systems. And so you are integrating to them, trying to set them up. It normally takes about six to 12 months for your average company to set up a warehouse. But then the problem is you don't have any flexibility on the other end at the end of the day. When you have this complex web of asset-based providers, of complex, outdated EDI and flat file integrations to manage them, all feeding back into your ERP as your source of truth for what's happening in your supply chain, you just can't adapt and you can't be flexible and you can't be agile. And, and we saw a lot of that last year as, as COVID started to, to, to break out and supply chains were disrupted. There were demand spikes, there were supply shortages. Businesses just, just couldn't keep up. And, and that's where we ultimately started seeing a, a lot more acceleration of, of adoption of this cloud supply chain model, where we're telling these brands, if you outsource this, if you move it to the cloud and let us abstract the infrastructure, abstract the complexity, you're actually going to be more agile and successful as a brand because you're going to be focused on your products and your customers instead of all this heavy lifting. I, I really like that concept uh, that you just called out cloud supply chain, right? Basically, the way that I interpret that is a marriage of cloud computing and supply chain. But talk through what that means to you. How do you think about that term cloud supply chain? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question because I think, as I mentioned, when you, whenever you're combining these very complex industries together, and for us, we're combining both a supply chain software industry, which is a $25 billion industry in its own right. When you think of uh, Infor, Manhattan Associates, NetSuite, these massive brands that serve in that space. And this other massive physical logistics industry, which is 200 plus billion dollars in the US alone when you combine warehouses, fulfillment centers, trucks, last mile uh, delivery drivers, and more, the, the FedExes, the XPOs of the world. And so we were thinking a lot about the category creation for what does it look like when you bring these two into one platform, into one configurable platform for a customer, but you also take them from these very long-term rollout, uh, either on-premise software or leases of your infrastructure on the supply chain side uh, model to a very agile model that a brand can access. And to us, it just kept screaming in our face that it's ultimately a cloud. A cloud is the on-demand availability of resources, in, in my opinion. And I think a few key premises of a cloud are that it abstracts the infrastructure so instead of leasing your warehouses or even contracting directly with them and committing to space, you're ultimately getting one network with stored. And whether it's a pallet in Atlanta or a pallet in Los Angeles, you're paying for one pallet, not one pallet in Atlanta. And so it abstracts the infrastructure. Uh, it turns the cost from a uh, long-term fixed cost and investment, a lease into a utility-like pricing. So pay as you go and instead of paying for massive implementations, paying for fixed resources and fixed allocation of resources you potentially need. Um, it combines many systems into one configurable platform. So if you think about some of the best cloud platforms out there, 
For example, if you look at AWS, once your data is hosted on AWS in the cloud, there's plenty of additional modules that you can use to, to transform that data, to make it more valuable, to extend it across your enterprise that you're only buying from AWS because they're already your core cloud infrastructure. So it combines many systems that could be standalone separate products into one configurable and vertically integrated product. Um, but then ultimately it abstracts the need for expertise. And I think this one can't be uh, underemphasized enough because it is really difficult to set up an Amazon level supply chain, but it's really difficult to set that up and also manage it across how many channels your average brand has to deliver on today. You have to be an expert at every single marketplace from Amazon to Walmart to Etsy to, to more. You have to be an expert at all of your B2B infrastructure. How am I purchasing inventory, getting it to the US, allocating across my warehouses and more. And it's funny, we talk about it internally. If, if you actually go back 15, 20 years into the early 2000s, when, when the cloud and the concepts, and maybe towards 2010, were really starting to, to grow and people were really starting to talk about them. One of my favorite quotes I ever heard about AWS was that your average buyer, like Capital One, who's a staple AWS client, took 10 years to, to shift to the cloud. And it's because it's as much of a cultural decision as it is a business decision. The same way that our sales leader, actually, I like to throw him under the bus, was taught back at ADP, hey, walk our clients through our data center and why we're the only one they can trust with their HR data to, to host it, to manage it more. And now ADP, like many other brands, run off cloud infrastructure. The same thing happens in, in warehouses today. Your average supply chain leader will walk through and say, only I can fulfill my inventory because this is how complex our SKUs are. But really that's sinking a lot of cost into that assumption and sinking a lot of both people, expertise, infrastructure, and more into that assumption that if you really say, okay, how can we ultimately pool together all of our supply chain spend, all of our volume and create more of a shared system and cloud-like system, I think we can make everyone more successful, more optimized and abstracted again from these complexities at, at an aggregate. And so I look across all those reasons and those are how I think, okay, we really are a cloud supply chain platform. But I'll come back to the very micro one that kind of gets lost in there is that we're also not just taking this complex enterprise software that's traditionally sold as multi-year rollouts, uh, sometimes just perpetual licenses are on-prem, if not sometimes SaaS and, and cloud and SaaS is growing in that supply chain management space. We're taking what's also traditionally very, very physical legacy infrastructure you're buying. You're either going to spend a hundred million in CapEx to go open a new warehouse yourself and hire all the team and bracket, get all the systems in it and more. Or you're setting up a long-term contract with a logistics business and you don't even know are you going to have demand in this market in the future? So do you need this warehouse in this new market for the future? We're taking that complex physical spend and we're giving it a cloud-like, utility-like pricing or SaaS-like pricing where you can actually pay as you go for your warehousing and other infrastructure. And, and I think that's just that kind of last kicker that to me really solidifies that we are building a, a cloud truly for our customers. I think that nuance is really interesting the way you frame it because one of the things... I think you noted in the early days of the company, and I know you'll argue that it's still very early days for the company, but one of the things you noted kind of earlier on in the company's life cycle was the original value of stored was more so in being an on-demand warehouse company, right? But as you guys did the work, talked to more customers, built product, you found out it's less so that, but more so in driving an efficient and data-driven process. 
that makes a lot of sense to me in the way that you just laid out kind of the fragmentation of the space and the different stakeholders or, or endpoints in the space. I want you to unpack that just a little bit more and talk about what that concept of data-driven means to you in this case. When you have something like a cloud supply chain and you've got all these kind of different moving parts, et cetera, talk a little bit more about what data-driven actually means uh, because in the in the next kind of uh, in the next question, I want to lay out um, the different levels at which data starts actually driving relatively interesting connections between your overarching uh, ecosystem. So tell us a little bit more about what data driven means to you in this case. Yeah, absolutely. So you hit on a really good point, which is I think any business like ours that starts in one of these interesting kind of physical spaces, um, I think there's a growing sector of kind of software-enabled B2B marketplaces. I think maybe a few years ago, it was purely B2B marketplaces, but I think now you're seeing this permeation of all these brands coming out where they're saying, I'm really providing you a software, but I'm doing it through a marketplace-like service. And you do that because ultimately you're in an industry where the software only exists as a means to kind of manage the workflows and complexities of the physical component you're buying. You wouldn't have supply chain software if you didn't have a physical supply chain moving. And so for your average buyer, that physical supply chain can sometimes take, sometimes take mindshare precedent, precedence, but you ultimately can't run it efficiently and in a data-driven way without the technology-driven workflow on top of it. I do think there's a key distinction that a lot of places start as a B2B marketplace and then you start to realize there's this tech-enabled workflow model over time. And, and sometimes that can stand alone as a marketplace. For stored though, we are really in the software infrastructure that's a lifeblood for your company. We are connected straight back into your ERP. We are telling you what's happening with hundreds of millions, if not more uh, dollars of your inventory or connected straight to your end selling point. And so I just make that distinction to say, well, some B2B marketplaces, there isn't always truly that real software opportunity on top of. Sometimes you kind of can't live without that, that software. And so it's a, it's a really great point. We started in the capacity saying, okay, there has to be a way to kind of pool all this warehouse capacity in a more virtual way to create more liquidity, more accessibility for your average brand so that people aren't out there signing leases. Um, this cropped up when I was at Hyoko and, and learning about their supply chain and, and digging in and trying to optimize and looking at why do we lease a warehouse ourselves in Canada and it's 50% or more empty and we're trying to sublease that out. Yet in all these other markets, we're committing to space in other people's facilities and we're not also not using all that capacity in, in other logistics companies. And so I started to say, it has to be a virtualization of the capacity problem. Then once you really dug in, it's kind of the question of why is somebody using that capacity in the first place? And in a lot of ways it's to as I started with, kind of get closer to that end customer to accelerate sales. And so you start to think, okay, there has to be a data-driven approach to why are you even using that capacity? But then you start to dig in and you start to say, okay, your average brand, when they're out there optimizing and running what's called a network analysis to say, where should my inventory be positioned based on where my supply is coming from and where my demand is, you can run a model like that and see, I have a million customers across the US and here's how they're positioned. And so as a result, I need five locations, five warehouses in these markets to, to, to ship to them. But we started interviewing some of these customers of the largest supply chain design firms out there, the largest supply chain design softwares out there. And the common complaint was, 
They constantly tell me I need to change my network in X, Y, and Z ways, normally based on outdated 12-month-old data that we've scrubbed, finally cleaned, and finally gotten packaged. But by the time they tell me that, it's so detached from when it happened that I don't know if the data is actually real and still I should make those changes, but also the process to even go change one warehouse in my network. And I have to go break an agreement with an existing logistics company, set up a warehouse in a new market, deploy a new software, uh, integrate that software into my order flow after someone buys to say, where am I actually going to fulfill that inventory from? That whole process can be another six to 12 to 18 months. And so we had a lot of these executives almost banging their hands on the table. Like I've spent this many millions on supply chain design and I'm not seeing the benefits. And so we ultimately said, there has to be this model of connecting your data and what's happening. We will be the normalized data source across your supply chain, understanding what's happening to your design. will actually tell you, you need less inventory in storage Atlanta warehouse. If it benefits your supply chain, but not ours from just your spend perspective. So connect your data to your design, to your actual physical execution. The second we tell you, hey, you have more customers on the West Coast and you should reallocate some of your inventory there to accelerate sales, you can click a button and we'll start shipping your inventory to our warehouse there instead of that typical analog manual process. And so that was kind of the thinking that led us down this. It's, it's much more of a workflow problem, much more of a data design execution problem. But I would just kind of go back to what we also noticed was that the, the main problem we're helping solve in this market, kind of at a higher level than that, when I go back to kind of that cloud narrative and why I think there's two reasons we're cloud is the main problem is your average brand is buying software on one sector of the market from, again, the, the NetSuites, the Infors, the Manhattan Associates. There's a reason 40 to 60% of most of those brands' revenues are professional services implementing, trying to actually migrate your complex supply chain to those softwares or you're buying physical logistics. But then if you look at the best brands out there like Apple, Ikea, Amazon, and the list goes on, they've vertically integrated, built all their supply chain software and all of their supply chain physical infrastructure in-house because they, they realize we can't build this complex web across these two industries and try to make them work well together. And so I would say one of the main things we, we realized in all that process that we had to help with was just pulling these two closer together. How do we make your software and your physical supply chain bought by one provider and one platform? And we wouldn't have discovered that if we didn't just keep this massively kind of day one iterative customer obsessed culture internally where we would have just focused dead set on being a warehouse capacity marketplace. But it, it really stemmed from... How do we virtualize the capacity? How do we make more people intelligent, give companies more intelligence about how they use that capacity? And then ultimately, wait, how do we really revolutionize this, this broader problem in the, in the industry, which is uh, fragmentation, uh, low integration, uh, low vertical integration, and ultimately a low NPS score. Your average logistics business is either uh, negative or very low on the, on the NPS uh, scoring because it's a, it's a bad experience for your average customer. I really like the data design and execution tie-in on how you've kind of married software and, and physicality. I'm, I'm going to give a stab, Sean, at the way kind of from the outside in, uh, some of the types of possibilities that that brings to bear for stored where my mind goes. And then I absolutely want you to tear it down, correct me and tell me kind of how an expert thinks about the business. Um, when, when I think about kind of that marriage, I think about the business on four levels, right? So I think level one is kind of the unit level. What's the possibility for business improvement at an individual warehouse, right? 
The second becomes at a grouping level. So what are the possibilities? What are the opportunities when you actually have connected warehouses or connected distribution centers that can speak to one another? The third level is, is more of a systematic level, right? So having a dynamic and software-driven supply chain in general, right? Across businesses, right? Across countries, et cetera. Um, and then the fourth is a macro level, which is really stored is naturally deflationary. So what I mean by that is when you lower the cost in the supply chain for any of the businesses that are using your supply chain, by definition, they lower their pricing or they pass that surplus onto their customers, which allows for new types of business models to emerge and thrive, right? Um, I'm curious how you think about kind of the business from that micro to micro levels, which is how do we make one warehouse, you know, uh, for one customer more efficient all the way up towards if we have a more dynamic supply chain, what might that do, you know, for new and emerging types of business models? I'd love to hear your kind of take or perspective on how you think about the business that way. Yeah, I think it is uh, extremely well articulated. So I wish I could uh, could cut you down on these and, and, and sound like the expert. I think all I could do is kind of extend them with more um, concreteness behind kind of what, what that means and what we see play out. And then I might add one macro. Um, but so I think if I start at the top from the unit one, uh, very, very accurate. When we start looking at the overall cost savings with our customers, impact of the business and more, be either kind of line by line, even cost by cost at a warehouse or your overall single facility increased efficiency at that exact location, whether that's increased throughput, uh, lower total costs to operate. There's, there's a lot of different ways you can look at it, or even just higher capacity utilization for the facility itself. Um, at the second level, I think is where it really starts to get more interesting than that unit and line by line level, which is the, the grouping. Um, and, and I think once you start to group multiple facilities across a network, you go from that, what is my cost fulfilling in this warehouse versus my own or the one I was in before to grouping. Now, what's my average landed cost per unit through? I want to combine my transportation, my handling in and out, my line by line picking fees across multiple warehouses to just look at my average cost per unit through, and even my average distance traveled per unit through and more. And, and once you can look at those kind of group level um, and almost system level, but I'll get to system in a second, kind of throughput and total system throughput, you start to be able to really think about a smarter supply chain in the way that an Amazon or a Walmart does, but your average brand is thinking about it just on one small leg or one small line by line or unit level. I think the next uh, you hit very spot on is that system level. And it's how do you really give that both dynamic and software driven supply chain, which ultimately I think the ROIs and the benefits are really less switching cost to going and setting up new markets to switching um, how you're gonna deliver your, your uh, products and, and more, which ultimately leads to more innovation as a brand when you have less switching cost, less fixed infrastructure, you, you can innovate more. It makes you more nimble to react to market challenges um, and, and disruptions in your supply chain and more. It leads to less overhead uh, you don't have to hire as many people on your supply chain team internally. You don't have to be the expert and, and know how to do this all yourself. But finally, it leads to resiliency. Um, it lets you survive in good times or bad times. In good times, it lets you accelerate and deploy to new markets faster and reach new customers faster than your competitors can. 
But at bad times, it lets you cut costs and optimize faster than your competitors can who are um, leasing warehouses, managing this legacy infrastructure. So I think the system is where you really kind of break into those transcendent type benefits that you get from a cloud. But then at the macro level, I think the deflationary one is, is a definite. Um, when we are lowering supply chain costs, we do expect to see those long-term translated to, our, to the end consumer, uh, who then ultimately saves money on the units they're buying, uh, both maybe in the physical, literal shipping costs, but maybe in the overall unit costs because the brand passes along more savings. But the one I get the most excited about is not the deflationary, but more the expansionary of how can we actually expand the logistics market? It's already massive. It's $225 plus billion when you combine the physical logistics and third-party logistics market and the software market here in the United States, supply chain software. But how can we actually give people more access to that? And so again, what we think about a lot is how are we kind of democratizing access to prime level logistics to brands of all sizes by making it a utility-like price? And one thing I think the cloud did really well for brands of all sizes was you go back a decade, it could be $100,000 or more for you to launch your first website, your first application or more because you're setting up servers, you're managing infrastructure. And I almost take it back to that joke of my parents driving me as a kid to UPS to, to ship inventory. When you're that small seller, it is really hard to compete because you don't have economies of scale. You can't place inventory in multiple markets to even think about competing with a brand on delivery promise. So instead you're relegated to sell on that channel and, and use fulfillment by Amazon or another uh, option available to you. But theoretically, if done right, we can really democratize access to what an enterprise benefits from mid-market and even small business to the smallest businesses and merchants out there and actually enable them to sell and compete more, thereby expanding uh, the, the overall market and how many participants can be involved in it. And that's, that's the one I get excited about because I think I've gone through this journey of having been that small merchant, having been at a larger company, now serving uh, a wide gamut of many, many large companies, many, many small, mid-sized growing companies, but it's really extending even farther down to that, that first time seller over the next decade that, that really gets me excited here at store. In normal times itself, you know, this isn't an easy business. I think the best businesses are ones in which as the consumer, right, whether you're on the B2B side or B2C side, you get the idea instantly, right? Something like an Uber, et cetera. But the back end is incredibly complex to execute, right? Um, and, and the complexity of that execution and translating that in a simplistic way that the consumer sees on their side is actually kind of the beauty of the business. I'm, I'm curious what the challenges are um, you've experienced in building and scaling the business. You guys have been growing quite rapidly. Um, and so, you know, with that, there are, of course, you know, normal startup challenges that, that everybody goes through. Uh, but I have to imagine there's been unique challenges in building such a complex um, web of connecting warehouses, distribution centers, et cetera. So what are, what are some of the challenges or, you know, kind of some of the non-obvious things, you know, laymen like ourselves that are not warehouse experts might think of in, in challenging and scaling this business? Yeah, absolutely. I think you hit the nail right on the head whereby saying we want to empower everyone else with prime level logistics seems like an obvious goal. Uh, but it's immensely complicated. Uh, Amazon spends tens of billions of dollars a year on running that supply chain. So uh, when uh, 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 two college dropouts said that was the goal and with, with no capital at the, at the front end, it didn't quite seem as, as easy or, or obvious or doable. 
Um, but it's been a really fun journey and, and I would boil it down to probably two areas. Um, the first I would say is a constituency area. That's been a really challenging problem. And what I mean by that is that there's so many possible constituents to our marketplace and our network and how we operate that you have to think about a lot of different users. And what I mean by that is you have a brand on one side, commonly called the shipper in our industry, the person with the inventory, the retailer, the e-commerce brand or more. And even at that brand, you have to build products for many different types of users, supply chain users, finance users, uh, sales people who are either engaging with the B2B inventory or marketing people who are trying to understand how it's influencing their online e-commerce sales. There's a wide swath of, of user types you have to build for just at that kind of first level, first order customer. But if you really start going down the list, uh, on, on the flip side, we have warehouses and carriers. And how do you interface with, for a warehouse, their WMS warehouse management system, for a carrier, their TMS, their transportation management system, and actively build a network of them whereby you're giving them enough physical and software value prop. We have to give them enough physical value prop of we have volume that can come into your, into your building or your truck if you're part of stores network and thereby you grow revenue. But you also have to give them a technological value. We can give you better software that you can go buy on your own or we can come to your native software to make it a low obvious switching cost for you. And those are just the two primary. If you really start extending it from there, there's also all the marketplaces and buyers we have to, to interface with. So we daily ship to all, almost all of the leading retailers, almost all of the leading marketplaces and more. And you have to have really good relationships, integrations and more with all of those different parties in the chain. And then for many of our customers, we had one customer recently trying to uh, onboard over 300 suppliers inbound, sending them inventory into their network that they're then selling. And how do they interface and interplay with us? And so that constituency problem is one of the biggest ones when you're building this kind of in this massive industry, whereby it's not even always your customer who's having to interact with you, the one paying you, it's, it's a different uh, party entirely. I think I started to hit at the second one, which is a systems problem. When you look at that, there's so much, one of the value props of what we're doing is we're taking this fragmented, uh, incumbent analog industry with a low NPS and kind of vertically integrating it into a platform driven approach with better customer experience, more utility like pricing and more. As a result, when you talk about vertical integration, there's so many systems. And so we always have this trade-off of what do we build? What do we partner with? What do we just leverage a third party on the, on the back end? How do we, how do we think about this stack overall? And where do we build today that we have the most value? And we think about it in terms of there's either kind of your primary products you need to run the network. Uh, you can't move inventory without them. And then there's premium products on both the shipper side, the brand, the e-commerce store, or even the logistics company. So this first two, I would say, are ultimately constituent problem, a systems problem. Just again, when you go between your, your ERP, your order management system, your transportation management system, your demand planning system, I can keep going for many minutes of all the different systems we have to sit in between as part of someone's supply chain or build ourselves. Um, but then the last one would just be a kind of scale issue. And when you're trying to build this and compete against the largest providers out there, both to really build the right network 
it's almost a chicken and egg problem of you need volume flowing through your network and you need shipments coming through warehouses and distribution centers or more. You can't build the software products around them in the first place unless you go be the network yourself. And that was not our goal. We built an asset light network so that we could offer that, that configurability, that scalability and more rather than owning warehouses across the country. And that's one of the hardest ones to crack is how do you actually effectively build a network that can offer prime-like service levels, prices and more even from day one. Uh, we still talk about being day one and early stage and iterative as a company, but from the literal day one, how do you actually start moving inventory when you have zero economies of scale and offer even competitive pricing or more on the other side? That was definitely a, a challenge and something to, to work through. And when you add all of those up, it just can lead to an immense surface area internally of the business that you have to think about. And, and I think it all comes down to how you build your organization, the right leaders you hire and experts you hire against that surface area and, and more. Um, because a lot of startups out there are that you want to do one product for one customer really well until we get to a billion or five billion. Then we'll start to diversify and look at more. But both the, kind of the blessing and the curse of, of an industry like Stored, like Stored is in is the opportunity is so massive, but that also just means uh, more, more complexity in, in your day-to-day -day and, and the harder decisions and, and higher floors of uh, trying to decide, is this the right time for us to tackle this or do we have to just rigorously try to push it off and wait for the future, which, which can be hard. You started the company out a, a couple of years ago, as you mentioned, Sean, as kind of two college dropouts with, uh, with limited resources. You guys have had... Um, You've raised a couple resources along the way, um, a little bit over $100 million. And recently, I think about $75 million from some great folks like Dan Sondheim, Founders Fund, Kleiner Perkins, our mutual friends over at Sousa Ventures. Talk about what's next for the company. And I'd love for you to hone in on a city that means a lot for both you and I um, uh, and, and your experience building in Atlanta. Absolutely. I've been uh, dead set on, on Atlanta since day one for Stored and uh, it's been such an incredible market for us. I am personally biased. I, I grew up in Atlanta and um, uh, while I worked other places, uh, traveled many places and more, I just always found the resources, the energy, the entrepreneurial culture and drive and differentiated resources here are so unique that um, it was a hard decision for me. I was looking at many different colleges and ultimately chose Georgia Tech won out in my mind because of Tech Square. I, I went through Tech Square and I went to uh, Atlanta Tech Development Center, ATDC, and saw the classes they had there and more. I saw CreateX at Georgia Tech and I just said, it would be foolish of me to go live in some college town or other where I don't have any of these resources. And uh, um, I'm very glad I made that decision and would not be here without it. And so to me, um, it's anything from that support day one of Georgia Tech when I when I approached the the, the dean of the business school and uh, and told leadership there that hey I think I'm leaving I'm I'm working on stored I've been doing this for six twelve months and here's some of the traction we've had to some of our earliest capital uh, one of our first investors was Chris Klaus um, who uh, gives back immensely to Georgia Tech and the community and more uh, to, to Tom Noonan and other great local investors and, and partners here at stored. And the community has just always offered such great support. But what I would really boil it down to is both differentiated talent and differentiated customers. You have amazing talent. We, we are literally across the street from the Scheller College of Business uh, in, in the Biltmore in, in Tech Square. And so we, we recruit hard from both uh, the MBAs and other Scheller graduates, but also College of Computing and other engineers from Georgia Tech. 
But you also have amazing talent, particularly supply chain from UPS, FedEx, Norfolk Southern, all these amazing companies and consulting uh, organizations and more throughout Atlanta. But then lastly, it's customers. Um, as tempting as it is for any startup to go build near venture capital because you think it's going to attract the most dollars, what ultimately attracts dollars is customers. And for, for us, being in and around Coca-Cola, Home Depot, Delta, Cox, the list goes on and on. And I can't even begin to scratch the surface of amazing brands located out of Atlanta. It was important for us. And many of those early co companies became co early customers of stored as a result of, of the market we're in and the products we're building and more. So all of those were really critical for me. And what I would kind of wrap, or, kind of wrap this answer in is that I think the biggest thing we need to focus on in Atlanta is, yes, getting more and more and more capital coming to the market so that more entrepreneurs can, can flourish and start businesses and scale businesses, um, but also getting it from tier one firms and from the firms that are giving amazing terms, the same thing they're giving if you're in San Francisco to Atlanta-based companies. I think too often you kind of see the... Um, Companies who raise outside of primary tech hubs get relegated to kind of worse round construction, I hate to say. It, it, it's very common and proliferated in the market. I think the more that we can do, which is very important to me when we raised our, our A, our B, our C, we raised about $125 million between all of those, whether it was partnering with Kleiner Perkins, uh, Founders Fund, Bond, D1, Sousa Ventures, and more. These are companies that I would be proud for other companies in Atlanta to get investment from. And I think they'd be amazing for our market. And so now I've spent a lot of time, whether it's as a scout for one or two of them, for just intros to many of them, just trying to open up the network of capital to any founders I can find in Atlanta as much as possible, because I think it, it's hard to access. I think when, when I started, I like to joke that I barely even knew what a venture capitalist was, much less knew any venture capitalists and just had to be uh, relentless on LinkedIn, on cold outreach, on Twitter, and more trying to meet people and build these relationships and build these connections. And so much of it when you're in the Valley is actually just warm introductions. They're not giving you the capital because you're in San Francisco. They're giving it to you because there's a trust, because you have similar networks. They can meet up at coffee shops and get to know you better. So the more that Founders like myself and, and more in the market can just really open up those doors with warm intros to great investors in other markets. I will say, the thing that I think is most exciting is I went from a few years ago, and I'm not just saying this because of how many people are talking about different markets across the US, not just saying this, but five years ago, I was getting the questions, why are you building out of Atlanta? Today, you get the question, how do we get the best pipeline of companies in Atlanta and differentiated access? And I say, you're, you're getting too late. People are starting to ask that now. You should, you should have asked five years ago. Um, but I think on, on, on all that, to, to answer your question, as those are some of my thoughts on capital, but from an overall company and kind of what's next, I think if it's not evident from what I've said, uh, we, are, we are very convinced that we're still in the early innings of, of stored. And, and I say that to say, we will be fundraising. We will be hiring more employees and more in Atlanta and building for years to come. And a lot of that from why we've raised that capital over the last 12, 18 and more months has been um, increasing our network reach, building a faster, better network that can serve our customers better, increasing its sophistication. Uh, we're serving really leading in enterprise brands, the um, Ecolabs, Dollar General, Schneider Electrics, Tyson Foods of the world, and we have to give them sophistication and trust and speed of delivery. 
Um, improving our technology, both for how do we optimize the flow of goods even more effectively through all those different components as we add more logistics infrastructure. Um, but then lastly, I think increasing the ability for our technology to stand alone. Customers can both use storage technology today, stand alone as software that they deploy across their logistics networks or in tandem with our logistics and with our entire platform. And I think the more we build our products to be both combined, our technology and our logistics in one and configurable, but also our software to be standalone where it's valuable, I think will we'll make our customers more and more and more successful. But other than that, we'll be, uh, we'll be building out of Atlanta for, for a decade plus to come and, and couldn't be more excited. Sean, I, I so appreciate you taking the time. Um, it was it was it was really great to hear your perspective on how you're thinking about supply chain and uh, and I love that you're building in Atlanta. So really appreciate the time. Thanks so much for coming on the show and looking forward to the next decade plus, you know, of stored and its in its impact in our city. That means a lot, and, and thank you for having me. And also thank you for for highlighting all the great things going on in this this city and in this industry. Appreciate the, the opportunity to be on the show. Cool. Awesome, Sean. Hey, that was the time.